copy of the scripture, if you'll open it to Ecclesiastes, the uh, third chapter. Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. Very familiar passage of scripture to believers. But, uh, truths here that are applicable for us for all time and helpful, uh, especially today as we look forward to the new year. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is one of my uh, favorite books in the Bible. I love uh, its, um, the issues that it raises and the truths that it proclaims, um, the, the divine answers to the complexities and perplexities of uh, life under the sun, living in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The text uh, reads as follows. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for everything, every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker for that which, in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I'm entitling this The Times of Our Lives. 31 times in our passage, which I've just read to you, the word time is used. 31 times. It is the dominant idea expressed by Solomon in our text. We measure and mark time, like birthdays, and especially today, New Year's Eve. Solomon, however, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides the theological significance of time. He bring, brings God into the discussion. He brings God into our consideration of time because we need him to properly and fully understand time from his perspective. That point of view, that is, from God's perspective, shows us that the Lord has appointed a time for everything. And that everything includes things that we perhaps would not like to contemplate. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Lord has even appointed injustice. 
That is not something we would normally think about. But he does. He even appoints oppression. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. These and other events in human history are part of God's eternal plan. We learned that from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. And that plan in that same verse is immutable. And we learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God's plan is inscrutable. You will never be able to unscrew the mysteries of God's plan. You'll never be able to comprehend it as fullness. These factors raise our understanding of time and these events beyond clocks and watches and calendars. I've already mentioned the fact here in our passage that God appoints time for everything. And we'll look at verse 1, and we'll give the heading, The Divine Government of Our Times. There is an appointed time for everything. Time-oriented events are under heaven's control, not man's. What is time? It's a divinely predetermined period, our occasion, our occurrence, for everything that happens in our lives. Nothing happens haphazardly or by chance. Neither chance nor fate govern anything in this world or in our lives. Please understand that, saints. Nothing. Don't don't, don't be afraid of Friday the 13th. Superstition doesn't rule a thing. God does. Please don't knock on wood. You're just wasting your time. God rules. He's appointed every event that happens in our life. You need to understand that. And we can therefore can affirm with David who wrote in Psalm 31 verse 15 these words, My times are in your hand. David had the proper perspective. He understood that what was transpiring in his life, no matter what it is, God was in control of those things. He brought them. And this, by the way, is our comfort. Yes, it's our comfort. That's why I was telling you, you don't want to be superstitious. You don't want to have that kind, those kind of ideas in your mind from the world because those things are not comforting. For behind the events and their timing is the hand of our sovereign, all-wise, all-knowing, loving God. That's comforting. No matter what the situation is, at this particular moment in your life, you can rest assured that God is the one who appointed it. And that's good. Because I've already told you, you know he's loving. You know he's wise. He doesn't do anything that is unwise. He can't do that. He is omnisapient. That is, he is all wise. And he alone can know all the contingencies. Think about that. You can only know some things. You try to figure out, well, if I do this, this might happen. 
God never thinks like that. For he is infinite in his understanding. He knows what will happen if he does a certain thing. And he's calculated all of that as only he can do. And he brings about that in our lives which are wise. And since he's sovereign, he can bring them when he wants to. And he does. When the whatever happens, Therefore, we can repose in absolute trust in him. The one who is governing everything in our life. We do not have to resort to, why this? Just simply say, Father, you appointed it. Why now? Because you wanted it to happen at this time. See, it's good to have a theocentric perspective on life, is it not? This truth, the government or the management of our lives by the Lord means that we don't live our lives by the whim of chance. It's not about luck. Somebody, I think it's a country western song, if I didn't have uh, bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. There's no such thing. Chance, by the way, I, I want to explain this to us, is not a casual or causal force. It does not cause anything to happen. Chance, as you know, uh, relates to mathematical probability. For instance, flipping a coin. You do it 50 times, and 50 times out of 100 times that you flip it, guess what? It's going to come up heads. It's the probability. Chance can't influence anything. Chance can't do anything because chance is not, no thing. It doesn't exist. It's a mathematical probability. It has no power. Even when you flip a coin, the, the, the factors that influence a coin flip include the force applied to the coin when it is flipped, the distance that it must fall from where it has been flipped. So chance has no power to influence the outcome of anything. We don't leave things to chance. We leave everything into the hands of the living God. Somebody's sitting here saying, well, I've read Ecclesiastes. And I read over there in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes where it uses the word chance. I'm glad you're doing some Bible reading. And if you would turn over there, I want to show you something. Show you something. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Solomon, applying all of his wisdom that God had given to him, pens these words, I again saw under the sun, that is, down here on earth, that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability let's just stop right there what all of these things are unexpected you would expect if the fastest guy on the track is going to win or the warriors, you think, well, they're going to win the battle and they lose. 
and bread is not to the wise. What? They can't eat, they're wise. And the wealthy to the discerning. They, they understand the stock market. They understand how to invest their money and gain wealth. They, they understand SP, Standard & Poor's, 500. They understand all that stuff. But they don't end up wealthy. That's unexpected. You say, well, what's the reason? Well, you says right there in the bottom of the verse, for time and, here's our word, chance, overtake them all. Now, let me tell you this word chance here appears, but it does not refer to anything like luck or fortune. It talks about contingencies, uncertainties, the ironies of life in a world that's under the control of God and the people who have those particular abilities which should give them a particular outcome, it does not happen. Solomon's point here is that no one can know the timing of ironic events, the unexpected. And you look at life and say, why is that? Bottom line, you have to trust God, right? Back in chapter 3, verse 1. You may have noticed that verse 1, there are two statements. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. It sounds like it's saying the same thing, right? Well, in fact, they are saying the same thing. Both of those statements in the verse uh, is a form of chiasm is what the writer uses here. Chiasm is the reversal of parallel statements, and that's what he uses here and is reflected in our English translation. The reason Solomon did that, the reason he stated it uh, in reverse order in both those statements is it creates memorable phrasing. He wanted us to get it. He wants us to understand that there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time uh, for everything or every event rather under heaven. It is important to remember God governs our times and the events that happen in them. The divine government of our times. Yours and mine. And then Solomon, what he does, he launches into the illustrations of our times. And we see beginning here in verse 2 through 8. In the illustrations, Sol Solomon's purpose is to affirm that all a person's activities, positive and negative, both constructive and destructive, happen in their times. All a person's responses to people, ob objects, and even events happen in their times. Solomon further wants us to understand this. Each activity, each response is under the providential plan of God over our lives. 
and over all of life. In a word, man is not ultimately in control. remember growing up in church and our pastor used to talk about people who thought they ran things. So they made their own mud and did their own daubing. That's a little saying they had. First of all, ain't nobody made their own mud because all of us have been made from the dirt. God is ultimately in control. In verse 2, We see in the A portion a time to give birth and a time to die. Solomon begins with the two most momentous events in a person's life, birth and death, matters over which none of us have control. Fact is, we were born into this world when God determined that we would be. Did you not know your birthday is the day that God had planned for you to be born before he created the heavens and the earth? Isn't it interesting that God calls you to be born in the 20th century <laughs> instead of the 18th? And born where you are born? God is in control of all of that. And we're going to die. We're going to leave this planet at the time that God has decreed for us. He has scheduled our death date just as he scheduled our birth date. David knew this. And David penned these truths in Psalm 139, verse 16, when he says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. End of quote. David recognized the sovereignty of God over his life. And that God had ordained a number of days for him to live. And he's written it down in his book, God's book. And what really that is, is God's mind. He has control over that. He says, you're going to live a certain number of days and that's it. Then you will die. So both those things, both ends of our life, birth and death. But Solomon's using a figure of speech here. Emerism, as it is called. That's what he is using here to express something. Amurism is a poetical device, and this is really a poem, a poetical device that suggests totality. Between birth and death, we live our life. That's obvious. What that means is in this Amurism, when uh, David, or Solomon talks about the totality of our life, he's saying that every aspect of our existence from birth to death is under divine management. all of it. There are people in our church who talk about um, how they ended up here in Oklahoma at this church. They hadn't planned to be here. Some of you probably raised your hand, oh, I sure hadn't planned to be here. In fact, I hadn't planned to be here pastoring. But you know what, guess what? I am not God. And God determined that we would be here to do what he wanted us to do. And notice, interesting, he never even consulted us. <laughs> he didn't say, come here, let me ask, what do you think about my plan here? God doesn't do that. <laughs> so like, who are you? Who am I? 
You're here because God said you're going to be here because this is where I want you to be to accomplish my purpose for my glory. Now, these uh, opposites that here in this poem, that's really what it is, the polarity of poetry, as one man called it. He goes on to say, verse 2, the B poem, 3A, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, that word kill, we need to explain it here, is not the word used for murder in the Sixth Commandment, where it says, you shall not murder. Here, the term refers to warfare, self-defense, judgment. God used warfare in the Old Testament to bring judgment on his enemies, and that included killing them. Enemies, not only his, but they were enemies of his people, Israel, and he judged them even by the instrumentality of Israel. Remember the judges? punish them with death. And Israel, indeed, uh, there were Jews the, in Ab Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Uh, they both were put to death because of their sin against God, and there was a time to kill as an act of judgment. God does that. And then Solomon continues, a time to tear down and a time to build up. Some have suggested that, that those two uh, opposites are suggested by the ideas of birth and death. Others have an alternative uh, explanation of this, and thinking perhaps it relates to Solomon himself. And I'm inclined to agree with this position that I'm about to enunciate. Solomon writing as his own time is running down. Solomon may be reflecting on the tearing down of his kingdom. Remember Solomon's sin. He had married a multitude of women, and some of them were idol worshipers. And God judged him for his idolatry. And he was presiding, but he was seeing his kingdom being torn down. Were his sins, his sin of idolatry. And after his death, the kingdom was divided. Perhaps, and I'm thinking, I'm inclined to think that's what he was seeing, the time to tear down. The opposite of it is, of course, in time, there is things that are built up. 4A, a time to weep and a time to laugh. The response is to death and destruction, the weeping part. Both those come at the divinely appointed time. time to mourn and a time to dance all appointed by him 5a a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones <laughs> gathering and rejecting building materials could be what Solomon has in mind and trust me nobody knows exactly you know what I do during the week? I study. I read what scholars have to say. And people cannot agree precisely on what some of these mean. And I, for one, 
cannot be dogmatic about it. But I do know there is an opposite. Right? And that God appoints them. 5B. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. We think this has to do with expression of affection between a man and a woman. Affection for one another. When it says a time to shun embracing, some scholars suggest that that means refraining from sexual activity because there's a standard that God has erected and he says you can't do that. That may be so. Certainly in the Song of Songs, that was the case with the Shulamite and Solomon that they kept their relationship pure before marriage. Then in verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up as loss. Perhaps you have an interest in a thing and you lose interest in it, the time comes. Or perhaps there's a lost possession and you're searching for it. You come to the point, there's no point searching for it. All of these are part of life. Verse 6, a time to keep and a time to throw away. That comes to us. Some of you, this <laughs> you might come to the conclusion that it's time to throw away some stuff. <laughs> Have a little fun with it. Verse 7, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. These actions probably are associated with mourning. For we know in the Old Testament, people, what they did in their moments of grief, they would tear their clothing. Job did that. Others have done that when they lamented, when they were sorrowful. And they remained silent. The sewing is, once the grieving, grieving period is over, they would sew their garment back together, signifying the, the conclusion of their grief. But the reality is God appoints those moments in our life. And you can't escape them. They're coming. Verse 8, a, it says, a time to love and a time to hate. The B portion, a time for war and a time for peace. Hate. When is there a time for hate? Let me tell you what the kind of hate is being addressed here. It is not just generalized hate. It is hate that is righteous indignation. Anger under the appropriate circumstances. Righteous anger, righteous hatred at God being dishonored, people being misused. That is the kind of hate that can be had by a person. One's born out of righteousness. A time for war. Right now, we're experiencing that. We have no control over it. The war uh, between Israel and Hamas, no control whatsoever. Did you not know God appointed that? 
Yes, they're responsible. Hamas is responsible for what they did in the murdering of those Jews. Yes, they're accountable to God for that, but God is the one who appointed it. He determined that it would occur. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the, the same. When peace comes, that's because God has appointed it. So what we're looking at here in, these, in this poem is we look at these opposites, we see the divine government of our times, personal and otherwise. We've seen the illustrations of our times. And one last thing, the meaning of our times. What does all this mean? Well, you notice, as he includes uh, the opposites here, he says in verse 9, what profit is there to the worker for that which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Hmm. Daniel J. Estes writes, Humans are bound by time, but they are wired for eternity. You notice in verse 11, he has set eternity in their heart. We're wired for eternity. We intuitively know that there must be meaning somewhere and that there we were made for more than empty toil. Because God has placed eternity in our hearts. When I was a kid, I've told this before, that troubled me. I couldn't understand why is it you're born, you grow up, you go to school, get married, have kids, and you just die. That, that just didn't make any sense. I said, what's the point of that? I was a kid. It's about nine years old or so. And I, I've, I've thought about that over the years, and I understand that God has put eternity in my heart. He's, he put in my heart, there's more to life than what you can see. There is eternity. I know that now. I didn't understand it as a child. God has made everything appropriate in his time. That word appropriate refers to God's governance of the timing of events at the right time, the appropriate time. We've discussed that. That's exactly what it is. He's put eternity in our hearts as well. And I'm going to tell you, he's done this. Notice in verse 11, after the comma, after the word heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Those two words, find out, has the sense of figure out, comprehend by study. Solomon thus realizes that both his desire to understand all of life as well as the limitations of its ability to do so have been ordained by God. God gave him immense wisdom to go and understand life, but yet at the same time, he didn't allow him to fully understand it. All that was by God's decree. 
Uh, I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't think anybody in here in this room, and no one listening to me or will listen to me, has um, the wisdom that Solomon had. And what that tells me is this. And what this verse is telling us is this. We will not understand all the complexities and mysteries of life. There are going to be questions that remain unanswered the very day we go to our grave. We're not going to get it. We live in a sin-cursed world, and God has determined uh, things to transpire, but yet he has not told us all the intricacies of his plan. They are mysteries. You're just going to have to live with that. But I'm going to tell you something else. Since you, you know that, if you read through Ecclesiastes, you'll figure that out. Well, then what shall we do? Good question, saints. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. end of the book end of the book what uh, Solomon does here in verse 13 he gives us two imperatives the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments you ain't gonna know everything what you can do is fear God and keep his commandments that's what we're to do fearing God is piety and it relates to our reverence for him and we reverence him by obeying him So in the times of our life, that's what we're to do. And there are two distinct groups. Two distinct groups. There are believers and unbelievers. And I believe this text is speaking to both groups. It's speaking to Christians. It's speaking to non-Christians. Now, notice verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. There is accountability to God. You may not understand why God will allow injustice. You may not understand why all the things that go on in the world and in your life, don't worry about that. What you need to do is just simply fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every act to judgment. You're accountable to him. I mentioned two distinct groups. Sinners repent and believe the gospel. Because if you die without Jesus Christ, you're going to stand before him at the great white throne judgment and you will be dismissed from his presence after he shows you your sins, make you worthy of eternal damnation. You refuse to repent of your sins and believe on him. Saints, Live in response to God's word. For your life too will be evaluated by Jesus Christ. You will stand before him at the Bema and you will give an account for how you lived your Christian life. 
So when it's all said and done, the bottom line is this. Here's the meaning. Fear God and keep his commandments. For there is accountability. We're about to embark upon a new year. Let this be the dominant reality in your life. I don't know what the new year will bring for me, you might say. But I know what I'm called to do. And by the grace of God, I will do that. I will reverence him. And I will obey him. Because one day, I will give an account to him bottom of this verse, verse 13 because this applies to every person. Nobody will go without giving account to the living God. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for um, your truths. We thank you that you are uh, the Lord. Thank you for reminding us of who you are and that our times, our days under your sovereign authority you appoint what happens grow us in our confidence in your greatness and wisdom just trust you as we live for your, you and your purpose I pray for anyone sitting in this room who's without Christ who've refused to turn from their sin and embrace him as Savior, Lord, bring them to yourself. Put on their hearts heavily the reality of judgment to come. And what all of that means if they refuse your son. And for believers, help us to refresh our thinking and our actions with respect to the coming reality of giving an account to Christ for how we live here on earth. Will you help us all that we may glorify your name? And may our year to come be one more faithful to you than this current one. Give us that holy perspective, an eternal perspective. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.